Hi, this is Anishka Fernandopoli. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button under my picture on dharmaseed.org or go to my website, anushkaf.org, A-N-U-S-H-K-A-F.org, and click on donate. Thanks. I appreciate your support. So we had some uh, very dramatic weather today. And for me, it was interesting because being from the West Coast now, as I am, uh, we don't get this kind of uh, thunderstorm like you got today uh, very often with the sudden downpour and lightning and thunder and uh, very uh, like dramatic and exuberant activities of nature. But I actually remember this from my childhood because as I mentioned in the opening, I grew up in the East Coast uh, so I remember this kind of uh, thunderstormy weather in the summertime. So I have a bit of like nostalgic feeling. And I remember also you know, earlier in the day, it was uh, quite clear, like it was very hot. And uh, I didn't expect this weather, didn't know this weather was going to come up uh, this afternoon. And those of you who have given up your cell phones also did not know. Because <laughs> <laughs> you have not been able to obsessively check your weather apps, right? <laughs> So there's something nice actually about um, being on retreat in some ways about being surprised like that, I think. You know, being able to live in some, yeah, just very basic human animal way. Because, you know, the squirrels also did not have a weather app and the birds and, you know. Uh, And yet also there's a way in which uh, I remember from my childhood also you can start to tell when the sky gets a certain color and the wind comes a certain way, like, oh, a rainstorm is coming. So this means you have to pick up your bike and go inside or take your toys inside, right? Uh, And you can kind of like train to learn this. So even though the squirrels and birds don't have the weather app, they are very tuned in, you know, as uh, like embodied creatures. And mostly you don't see them suddenly like shocked and running, you know, like there's like a sense that animals... um, Let's try that. (laughs) That animals know this, you know, and that we as animals too can, uh, through our practice of embodiment, actually tune in to these aspects of nature that we otherwise have lost touch with, you know. Uh, That otherwise we feel like, oh, I need to look at the app to see whether it's going to rain or it is raining or something like that, you know. It's like, oh, I could step outside and feel the air and smell and uh, like that. And in some way, it's similar uh, what we're practicing with awareness, with learning about the inner landscape. So with mindfulness, with this practice we're doing, in some ways we're developing this different way of knowing that for most of us we've neglected for much of our life. Or maybe we didn't even know this in some ways. So we're having this opportunity to cultivate and to, to tune in, like, oh, what is, what is this experience of the body? What is this experience of the mind? How does this idea of who I think I am get constructed? And in this way also, you might have encountered in your inner landscape some sudden thunderstorms or uh, dramatic weather uh, in the mental field, uh, in the emotional field. Or maybe it was a pretty quiet day internally, internal weather, 
so either way, our practice is to be present with that. You know, be present with all of that as it comes, as it goes, and in some way start to recognize ourselves as part of nature. So part of nature means that uh, everything that we experience in the body, in the mind, is always moving, changing, just like the clouds, just like the wind, just like the weather, uh, moving through. So there's no one you know, individual that is machinating the weather, right? And or I'll suggest that I don't know. <laughs> you know, there also is not a you who is actually individually machinating your internal weather. You know, it's coming about because of different conditions, certainly, but uh, it's hard to find some uh, central figure uh, who owns it all, right? Who can control it all in some way. So this is among the kind of um, insights that we can gain through our practice. And you know we've been emphasizing this continuity and this embodiment and connecting with the experiences of touch, of smell, of sound, you know, of these senses that we don't usually tune into. Partly for a kind of balancing kind of way, partly because it's easier to notice these things through the experiences of the body and other senses than it is to go right to looking at the mind. So as I have mentioned, uh, I believe in the first day, uh, in this Buddhist psychology is considered that there are six sense experiences that occur in rapid succession and which make up what we call our life or ourselves. So seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, hearing. And then the sixth one being the sense experience that we have through the sense door of the mind, of thoughts, images, uh, dreams, reflections, plans, memories, uh, old TV shows, uh, songs you heard on your uh, radio before you drove here, you know, just when you arrived, and etc., right? So all of that stuff, you could say, is happening in the field of the mind. And there are all these other senses that are also occurring, like we're having experiences with consciousness through these different sense doors in rapid, rapid succession. And then as that uh, goes through, we perceive that or misperceive that to be some solid entity that we call myself, you could say. So here we're giving you some techniques, practices, contemplative exercises, you could say, uh, to help balance collect the attention so that we can see what is the true nature of our experience. Uh, And particularly oriented around this sense of uh, freedom and ease of being. So when is there this sense of freedom and ease of being and what are the obstacles to that? Uh, What are the constructions that happen uh, that seem to be conducive or unconducive to that? So supposing you just went somewhere and were like, I'm gonna hang out for a week and then I'll see if I have freedom of ease of being at the end of that week, right? (laughs) Without trying anything, you know. So yeah, maybe that would happen for you, but for most people more likely it would go something like sitting around and thinking about your life and your problems, thinking about yourself, getting hungry, going to look for a snack, seeking a better snack, <laughs> going to look for a pleasant experience outside, and then looking at that for a while, then getting too hot, looking for it's cold, you know, like this, right? So 
in some ways the recipe that we usually follow is uh, try to seek out a sense experience in one or more of these six different fields that is pleasing to me. And then try to make that last. So the Buddha actually talked about this experience we have of embodiment and he says like it's uh, in these six different senses it's as if someone captured six different animals. Uh, So let's say that there's a snake, a crocodile, a bird, a dog, a hyena, and a monkey. I'll say these are the ones the Buddha said because, you know, we might have picked hyena and monkey because we don't know them uh, (laughs) here so well. But so then then you tie them together. This is like the six different sense, sense consciousnesses. And then what happens? So each one wants to go back to its home, right? Like each one wants to go where it's comfortable and where it, it knows the landscape. So then they're all pulling. So uh, in the sutta, the Buddha says the snake wants to go to an anthill, I guess, to eat the ants. And the crocodile wants to go to the water. The bird wants to go to the air. Uh, the dog wants to go back to its home in the village. Uh, the hyena wants to go to the charnel ground. So the hyena would go and like eat the corpses and whatnot. So wants to go there. And then the monkey wants to go to the jungle. So, right, so all the sense, sense feels is like pulling these different ways, like, I want a good sight, I want a good taste, I want to think about myself, I want this, I want that, right? So for most of us, this is all we know as the strategy for well-being. You know, try to find pleasant experience and then try to line that up as much as possible for as long as possible, right? So when I described, you know, this like what you might do if you just kind of plunk down without any, any instructions, uh, which could be a description of you on your day off, maybe, I don't know, <laughs> you know then uh, why is it? Because like, okay, we see a sight, then we get uncomfortable, then we want to go for a pleasant taste, then that finishes, then we want to get a pleasant like TV show, then that finishes, right? So the problem with this strategy is just that it is sadly doomed to fail because everything ends you know so the tv show ends the food that's tasty ends the temperature it's too hot then it's too cold like all of these things are always changing and so it's just fraught you know that strategy for well-being to seek well-being in this realm of the senses so it's not to say that you can't have beautiful experiences through the senses and in fact, one of the happinesses that is available to us that the Buddha talked about is actually being able to experience uh, sense pleasure, as long as we don't look to it for more than that, in some ways. So some of you might have experienced already through some of the settling and simplifying of life that, yeah, even something like drinking a cup of tea or sitting quietly in the grass, yeah, there's something very beautiful about that, or even taking a step sometimes. You know, there can be something very satisfying about uh, sensory experiences that you usually overlook or ignore or are moving too fast to tune into. You know. So as we tune in, then we also get the uh, benefit of the mind settling, the attention settling, you could say. And this is another level of well-being, of happiness that the Buddha talks about that is available to us from simplifying our life and from practicing uh, meditation. 
So there's a happiness available to us from the collectedness of mind. So from samadhi, concentration, focus. And this happiness is actually beyond anything that we can find in the world of sense pleasure. So if we can access that, which I know that uh, some of you have had, even in just moments of where it's like, oh, this, the collectedness of mind, you know, not looking outside for well-being, but the contentedness that's possible when the mind and stops struggling, right? So when all these animals just like lie down for a little while, right? <laughs> stop trying to like bust out, like, there's actually a sense of, uh, of ease of being that's possible there. Right, a sense of contentedness, this freedom from struggle. And it's good to notice that when that happens, even if it's for like one blessed moment, you know. And then the uh, highest happiness that is the, uh, you could say the highest potential of this uh, path of awakening is the happiness that is beyond all changing circumstance. So this is this, liberation of of mind and heart that's possible. So even the collectedness, the samadhi, the concentration is is somewhat constructed, you know, it comes together because of different conditions. But it's actually possible for us to, in some ways, radically uh, alleviate suffering from the mind stream and find this freedom and ease of, of being that's possible regardless of any other conditions around. And along the way, it's challenging. So the process that you're going through in entering a meditation retreat, which is a very courageous thing to do, uh, it could be seen as similar to uh, the creative process. So I saw a meme uh, online about the creative process, and uh, I'm currently trying to write something. like, uh, And... Because of this, I related to this uh, this meme very much. So it listed like different stages in the creative process. Um, so one is this is awesome. This is the beginning, right? That could have been you, like as you arrived here. And you know. <laughs> the next one stage is like this is tricky. <laughs> it's like ooh, it's a little harder than I thought. Okay. Then the next stage is this is crap. <laughs> right. Then the next stage is. I am crap. <laughs> uh oh, it's been like formed into a me now. Now it's like me. Then it starts to look up, like, oh, this might be okay. Right? And then the last stage is like, this is awesome. <laughs> so back to that. Right? So I don't know if this exactly fits for your experience of uh, retreat, but you could have gone through something like that, or you could be going through that. And whatever stage you are in this, uh, I sympathize with you. <laughs> Like these are very common uh, experiences, judgments that people have along the way. So what's some of the tricky stuff, right? So tricky stuff, we've talked about some, imbalance of energy, so getting really sleepy, getting really restless, right? What else is some of the tricky stuff? Is like getting bored or wanting something else to happen than what's happening? Uh, Like wanting something really good to happen or struggling with something that feels unpleasant, like body pain uh, or difficult emotions, something like that. 
And then in some ways, the trickiest of the this is tricky thing, which we might not even be able to identify as such, is when we start to doubt. Like, why am I doing this? What is this about? I can't really do this. Everybody else looks like they're uh, like so meditative and wise and uh, like only I am struggling with my knee pain. Surely it should have gone already, right? So the reason that I can actually articulate this and you can snicker a little is because <laughs> uh, I learned this from my teachers 30 years ago who learned it from the Buddha who articulated it 2,600 years ago <laughs> as very common challenges people face when they come to meditation, you know, when they embark on this path. And mostly the recommendation with these is to do your best to try to know these states of mind as they arise. Do your best to try to understand them, uh, to learn from them, and in some ways to see them all just like these weather patterns. So get interested in them. Uh, be curious about them. Feel what the energy feels like in the body as it moves through of all of these push-pull. Also, meanwhile, what's the challenges to meditation? Uh, you might think a challenge is your thinking mind. And so far, primarily, we have kept the attention, uh, you know, generally with the experience of the body and the other senses besides the mind. But certainly there's a lot of activity with the mind. And, you know, we sort of, as we go through the days, uh, focus on that as well. So many people have this experience of noticing like, wow, I spend so much time in thinking and the mind just goes back and forth between thinking about stuff that happened and rehashing it and trying to like relive that in some way or worrying about stuff that might happen in the future or planning good things that could happen in the future. And then the stuff in between when the mind is active, is thinking about me and what other people think of me. Right? <laughs> so again, the Buddha actually articulated this, and he articulated this as um, the thicket of views. And So these are uh, unrecommended topics for uh, <laughs> ruminating on, <laughs> for which you will not really find an answer. So um, ideas that are unfit for attention by the noble practitioner. Uh, and he actually calls it the thicket of views. So, uh, was I in the past? Was I not in the past? What was I in the past? How was I in the past? Uh, having been what? What was I in the past? <laughs> <laughs> now it goes to the other one. Right? So, shall I be in the future? Shall I not be in the future? What shall I be in the future? How shall I be in the future? Having been what? What shall I be in the future? And then even back to what appears to be the present moment. These are also unrecommended ruminations. Am I? Am I not? What am I? How am I? What has this being come from? Uh, where is it bound to? Etc. Etc. So it's interesting, like on, you know, especially a retreat like this, this identity-based retreat in some ways. So in order to come to this retreat, at some point you did come to some answer to some question <laughs> that uh, about who am I or, you know, what am I that, that might have manifested uh, in some identity marker that made you sign up for this retreat, right? LGBTQI in some way. 
So it's not that there's uh, anything wrong with this or that it's not even provisionally true, but it's interesting to play with, you know, in this field of awareness, as we get to understand what's the mind, what's the body, uh, where do these, these identities arise? Like, what's the nature of identities? So for me, uh, my queer identity uh, is actually intimately entwined with being uh, in this room. So I came on retreat the first time here, uh, an attendee retreat when I was uh, about 19 years old. Uh, and at that time I had been in the, you know, Q questioning, not Q queer phase. And I was in college and I was like, oh yeah, maybe, maybe not, I don't know. And then uh, being forced, as you all are, to sit there for, you know, many periods of 45 minutes and observe the mind and body <laughs> and notice. I was like, yep, uh, that's... Uh, <laughs> So, you know, without being able to squirm away or, you know, dodge or distract, it became very clear. And, and fortunately, you know, this is among the, the aspects of, um, that arises for us on retreat is facing various dimensions of our mental life, our physical life, right, our experience of being that we otherwise might push away, right, and distract from or uh, not want to deal with, right? Uh, so if this happens for you in some way, like this is a very uh, normal and in some ways helpful aspect part of the path. So they say that um, this is called insight meditation and the joke about it is that you get a lot of insight but in the beginning most of it seems like bad news. <laughs> <laughs> so, but fortunately I had a community of, um, very supportive community of um, young queer people and so uh, at first it was uh, scary news, as it might have been for many of you. Um, but then I was able to go back to my friends and uh, talk about it and manifest it. And then came like a huge explosion of freedom, you know, energy and freedom that um, many of you might relate to in the early, like coming out and sort of allowing this being to manifest like as uh, seems in accordance with nature, like as seems to be... Uh, true in some way. So it's, it's provisionally true for sure. And then, you know, I went through different phases uh, of being very engaged in, uh, like, at one point living in a queer household and playing on a lesbian soccer team and having a job in a gay health center and, you know, just full-on, like, rainbow experience uh, of life. And then now I have to say, like, I live in San Francisco. It's, like, almost 30 years later. And, um, you know, my life and the community I live in allows uh, this not to be the strongest identity all the time that uh, is at the forefront. So I notice more when I'm in less queer environments, certainly, like, and I've become more conscious of that. But, you know, identity arises um, kind of conditionally in some ways, right? So... Uh, sometimes I'm in a group of people and then it's very clear to me like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm older than most of the people here. Or sometimes I'm in a group of people and then the identity arises like, oh, I'm a person of color in relationship to this group. Or I was just teaching in uh, England and uh, then I became very aware of being an American, you know, which is not an identity that I hold too strongly when I'm soaking here in uh, America, right? with everybody else here. So. 
So identities arise provisionally and they can change, you know, and, and they, they arise in the field of the mind uh, and they are temporary and they can be useful. So even if, you know, I didn't remember at different times, like the, uh, I'm an American or I'm this age or I'm a lesbian or, you know, my background or something like that, at different times it does arise and yeah, in that moment it's true. And you could say conceptually it's true in some way, but in different moments it's different. So you can be curious as you see ideas arise in your mind about who you are, you know, in relationship to others, in relationship to your past, and see the changing nature of that in some ways. So uh, when I was teaching in England with my uh, a friend of mine, uh, Catherine McGee, who has become a dear friend, I was sitting here for the Dharma talk, uh, and she was speaking. And then for some reason she said something about, uh, you know, after the retreat, uh, I'm going to take uh, Anishka to uh, where I grew up, and we're going to go to the high street. And I had been just sitting here, like, uh, listening to the talk, really just listening, and suddenly this uh, sense of, like, identity or self rose up and was like, I'm going to go on a trip with the teacher, you know. <laughs> and then quickly I remembered, like, I'm also the teacher. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then, then came, like, what is a high street? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which it turns out is, like, Main Street in uh, British towns. Um, so she was going to take me to, like, the main drag of where she grew up. But it was interesting to see these in, like, rapid succession. And, you know, in the just sitting there, I had forgotten... Uh, oh yeah, I'm on the stage, I'm also a teacher. I mean, it still was cool to go with the teacher, but like, you know. <laughs> so you could notice the, the ways in which your identity arises, you know, conditionally in some ways, um, depending on who you're around or uh, what the circumstances are, and then how it passes away again, too. So some of this, um, this is a, a practice of being able to observe the the mind and thoughts and this is the slipperiest of the sense fields to be able to ha- get a, a handle on I'll say you know my thoughts come very quickly and it's the sense field in which we're usually most identified with a close second being sight but I'd say primarily this experience of thought we believe all the thoughts that come through and we take them to be uh, me or mine But when you examine it a little bit more, you can see like, oh, okay, maybe they're just coming and going. They haven't been scripted. They haven't been invited. So along the way in my um, queer life, I had uh, taken up this, uh, I guess, habit or uh, joyful pastime of going to different pride parades. (laughs) Some of you might have also uh, done this in your life, either in the place that you live or grew up in or... uh, live now or uh, I, I must admit I do a little bit of like pride tourism too so uh, when I went to England it happened to be right around the time of Amsterdam pride so I went to Amsterdam pride this year like uh, earlier in August which happens on uh, canal boats so the floats are literally floats right so, <laughs> so they go on boats in the canal and they have um, maybe about 80 different boats that are floats and people are lining the walls of the canal watching. And then some people also are, uh, have brought their boats and anchored on the side. So also sitting on boats and watching. Uh, and then 
people have brought basically anything that floats and are sitting on it <laughs> also to watch the parade, right? So. so you're stationed in one place and it's very crowded and um, they have also these bridges that are relatively low. So uh, we were at right at the beginning of the parade, but you'd see this boat beginning to emerge and then it would come out and then usually it would unfold this um, like much larger inflated uh, sort of piece on the boat. And they were very creative. And then they would shoot these confetti cannons and then, you know, be singing a song and everyone would cheer and it would go along. And then it would have to sort of collapse to go under the next bridge also, you know. So they had to do this like over and over because there are these bridges and the collapse and then it would go up. And then the next one would come. It would be like coming and then it suddenly is like uh, a giant figure of justice or... um, a giant like rainbow lion or, you know, any number of different things. And they had really elaborate floats. And so I was thinking, oh yeah, in some ways this could be like watching the mind, you know? (laughs) You could be like, okay, I'm sitting here. And then if you're very quiet, you can see the beginning of that, you know? But usually we only catch it once the confetti cannons are already (laughs) going off and the inflated thing is doing its thing and we're already into it. But then eventually that also disappears, right? Like eventually it, it has to, it collapses and it goes under this other bridge and then you never see it again, right? This thing. So if that's helpful to you as a metaphor, <laughs> you could consider, like, right? You could observe the mind like a pride parade floats, like, <laughs> right? And the next one, like this, right? And related to this essay, I also have had the experience of uh, marching in Pride uh, many times in San Francisco, where I live now, uh, also in Boston, where I used to live, in New York, I think. I have, um, and I've been on the boards or in many uh, LGBTQ organizations over the years. So uh, when I first moved to San Francisco, I had a job that was on uh, Market Street, which is like the main street. And I would go every day on the BART, on the subway, and then come up and walk a couple blocks to my office, uh, which was near there. And uh, yeah, it was pretty unremarkable, you know, early morning, walking, bag, coffee sometimes. And I remember one, the first time that I went uh, in Pride there, uh, I was on the board of this organization, this uh, South Asian queer organization, and uh, they wanted people to be on the float. And they were like, uh, we need some women to be on the float and nobody wants to be on the float, so you're on the board, you have to get on the float, right? <laughs> and I was like, no, 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 I don't want to do it. You know? They're like, no, you have to do it, this is your duty, you represent, blah, blah, blah. So I was like, okay. So I got on the float and then the float starts going down uh, Market Street and, um, you know, first tentatively waving. And then it's like millions of people are like cheering, <laughs> you know? <laughs> And I remember starting to feel like happier and happier. I was like, wow, like I'm actually being able to be totally like out and who I am and all these people are cheering. And, you know, every other day for the last umpteen years, nobody has cheered for me walking down Market Street, (laughs) you know? But I remember that sense of like, oh, wow. Like, and it wasn't pride like a bad pride, but it was like, oh, take this in. This is less. Then I got really into it, you know, it was like very fun to do. But it, it made me realize also there's a way in which, you know, other days, um, yeah, my sense of, of being was uh, in some ways like somewhat collapsed, you know, like there was a sense of not being as fully present on that walk to work, on the same street, 
You know, that's what's interesting, on the same street, the same blocks. And so I took up this practice of uh, embodiment, you know, in that. I didn't wave like that and, you know, (laughs) people didn't cheer, but there was a sense of like, oh, what is it like to be fully present in the body, you know? Uh, And I've done it before. I've seen what that's like. Uh, And maybe I don't need the people cheering for me, but I can practice this, you know? Like, what's that like to live in that same way with, like, full dignity, you know, full dignity in in, uh, existence and movement, and what if that was something that I could discover not just one day a year and not because people were lining the streets cheering for me, but it was something that could flower from within. So this is also uh, something that you could practice yourself. So in the walking practice. So in some ways it may seem pretty mundane or you know boring, but um, there's a way in which it could also be like your pride parade. <laughs> so this is like embodiment. You know, this is the opportunity to be as fully present with dignity, with love, you know, regardless of who is looking at you or cheering for you. Like, what would that be like to really fully walk on the earth? You know, fully be present and walk on the earth. Like, manifest that unique form of life that you are. Beautiful, unique, wacky, anything, you know, in each step, in each moment. So in my teaching also, uh, I had an opportunity once to teach at a school in San Francisco. And it was a private school. um, And a friend of mine had asked me to go in and um, teach these kids who were like maybe like 11th grade or something. And so I went in to teach them and I noticed, you know, I I hadn't been around like high school kids in a little while, but I noticed among the... uh, sort of group of kids, like, some of the kids were really, like, eager and present and easy to deal with, and, you know, some of the kids were kind of, like, crumpled back or, like, a little guarded and, um, you know, slumped over or, like, arms folded or, you know. uh, But also, like, otherwise somewhat, like, not fully uh, present in that same way. And somehow from that teaching experience, I I kind of recognized like, oh, you know, some of these kids seem to be like living from and operating from, what is this belief that like, we belong here, this world was made for us. And then these other kids are not, you know, They, they don't seem to have that as their like operating principle in some ways. And as an adult, it was actually much easier for me to deal with the kids who, who had that kind of confidence and ease, right? And it made me consider like, oh wow, what would that be like if all of us, you know, every single person on the planet got that message? Like, you belong here. You know, this world was made for you. That's touching, right? Like for me even to, to say that it's touching because I know there's so many ways in which uh, I didn't feel that in growing up and you know, maybe even still now there's some doubt, right? And there's a way in which our, our practice of presence is in some ways like, I think like reformatting or uh, reigniting the possibility of us knowing that to be true. So like the example Pascal gave of uh, you know, the Buddha touching the ground, 
you know, touching the ground in this like uh, dispelling doubt, dispelling doubt about his right to be here, his right to seek awakening, his right to extinguish all of the obstacles to freedom and ease of being and wisdom. So we do this, you know, more intentionally in the metta practice as we did this afternoon, this cultivation of this sense of uh, well-being and ease, like, may I be well, may I be safe, may I be happy, may I be healthy, you know. So we're kind of relearning in some ways that sense, like, yeah, we belong here. Like, we also have the right to exist and, in fact, are beautiful manifestations of life. So this world was made for us just by the fact that we are in it also. In all of our rainbow myriad glory. And in some ways, the more that we can recognize this, the more that we can embody this, and then the more that we can access the wisdom that is possible from this continued embodiment, the wisdom, the love, we can get out of that kind of thicket of views of worrying about this and that, you know, who am I in the past? What will I be in the future? What about, you know, and this way actually shine forth in this way that's a blessing for ourselves and also a blessing for all those who we meet too. So I'm happy that we're in the middle of our retreat, but we have still some time to go for practice, for learning, for uncovering wisdom, and for reminding ourselves that we too belong here. This world was made for you as well. So in this way also, when we can forget, like, oh yeah, maybe, you know, Here's me and my practice. Here's me and my struggle. A couple of days in, you could kind of forget the rest of uh, you know, your connections to people, your life. But whatever the transformation that we're able to access, whatever the development of wisdom, of wholesome states, of generosity, of kindness, of love, you know, these will be of benefit to everyone we meet. These will allow us to be uh, inspiring to that young person that you might have been in the past, uh, whatever version you would have been in that high school class, and take our place in the pantheon of beings who have access to freedom and ease of being. So we can practice that a little bit now. So as we sit here, you can just feel your body and however it's manifesting and This freedom and ease of being, is, is it possible it could be there even if there's some knee pain, even if there's some sleepiness, even if there's some grouchiness or grumpiness? Can we connect with the sense of our heart, our own good hearts, our sincerity of practice, regardless of the judgments, our thoughts, connecting with our own goodness, deep goodness, 
can take our intention to continue our practice as best we can. Can hold in our hearts, maybe even your teenage self or whoever that might be who you might meet upcoming. your colleagues, your loved ones, your friends, and even all those who are here. So our practice together supports each other and leads to the conditions for our collective awakening. May we all uncover the truth of the Dhamma. May we experience freedom in this life, complete freedom. May we have access to the deepest wisdom and love for our benefit and the benefit of all beings. half an hour for your evening pride parade, walking, (laughs) and then we'll come back in for the last uh, sitting of the evening with chanting also. And I'll say also encouragement that, uh, you know, from the beginning of the retreat, maybe you felt like, I'm a little tired, I'm going to cut off that early morning sitting, and yeah, maybe I don't think I need to go to the late night. You can see how it is for you now. So, you know, maybe you have more energy, Maybe there's more curiosity or inspiration. So, yeah, I encourage you to uh, extend, if you can, uh, to come to the later sitting in which you will get to chant good wishes. And then also to come to the uh, early sitting. Early sitting is a very good one for setting up uh, your habits for when you go home. Many of us will have a busy schedule when you go home, and one of the things we'll talk about is uh, yeah, how helpful it is to have a regular daily sitting practice. So uh, that one is half hour, so it's kind of a good amount to get into a habit of doing before breakfast. Uh, so for that reason, I encourage you to come too. So, all right, thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.